You are listening to Odyssey, the podcast, history's other most awesome epic. This is episode nine. Today's episode is titled Telemachus, Menelaus, and Helen of Troy. So welcome back, folks, and you are now listening to episode number nine of Odyssey the Podcast, an episode I am choosing to title Telemachus, Menelaus, and Helen of Troy. Now, the story that I've been telling you, just a quick refresher, is about a rescue mission. A rescue mission conducted by Athena, the goddess of practical wisdom. And at the start of the previous episode number eight, Athena had strapped on her magical sandals and taken flight high from Mount Olympus down to Odysseus's island kingdom of Ithaca on her rescue mission. And the individual requiring rescuing, of course, is Odysseus's 20-year-old son, a lad named Telemachus. Now a couple of quick things about Telemachus. Telemachus is a very nice, sensitive, gentle, sweet, thoughtful, and eminently well-mannered young man. Unfortunately for Telemachus, he's also, well, a bit of a wuss. Now, the problem, of course, was the nature of Ithacan society, and folks, it likely bears us remembering as we head into this episode and moving forward inside of Odyssey, the podcast, that Ithaca was not some wonderful constitutional democracy founded on principles like liberty, fraternity, and justice for all men and women, or anything like that. Rather, Bronze Age Ithaca, in fact, the entire Bronze Age world, well, the folks, the lead characters inside of this story, we would call them today pirates. And men like Odysseus, Achilles, Agamemnon, Menelaus, all of those contemporaries from the story, well, these men loved nothing more than murder, rape, carnage, bloodshed, and the occasional good old-fashioned multi-generational blood feud. So, if you were going to lead these people, if you were going to be the king of one of these Greek city-states, a place like Ithaca, then you needed to not only be cunning, not only smart, but you also needed to have, as king, an incredibly strong arm and a merciless iron fist when necessary. So, being raised a 20-year-old heir to the throne like Telemachus, and also being a little bit of a wuss and a mama's boy... Well, Athena realized that that was not going to work. Telemachus was not going to be able to govern this kingdom, whether his father came home and then retired someday, or worse yet, if his father never came home at all. And so Athena, recognizing Telemachus's limitations in the ability to govern this rugged and brutal race of people, had flown from Mount Olympus down to Ithaca to try to help Telemachus grow a spine and prepare himself to someday be the king that Bronze Age Ithaca required and expected. So, now it was day three of Athena's rescue mission to Ithaca. The first two days had been spent around the palace, helping Telemachus to identify his public speaking abilities and skills, and now on day three, Athena had suggested that Telemachus might want to take a road trip. 
She wanted to get him out of Ithaca. She wanted to get him away from the overly protective skirts of his mother, Penelope. And she wanted to get him away from the increasing danger and the threat of the 108 bully boy suitors who were considering killing Telemachus. So Athena had suggested that, why don't you take a road trip? You could go to the kingdom of Pylos, the home of your dad's old wartime buddy, King Nestor. And then from Pylos, you could sail on or hike overland on to Sparta and meet your dad's wartime buddy, Menelaus. The two men might be able to give you some information on your missing father. Now, of course, Athena could have spared Telemachus the entire time and trouble of the trip by simply turning to the young man and saying, don't worry about your dad, he's very much alive. We just spirited him off of the island of a sea nymph named Calypso, and he is currently residing with a wonderful group of people called the Phaiakians, and oh, by the way, he'll be home in a matter of days, so no need for you to worry at all. But that, of course, would not have done a thing for Telemachus's maturation process. It would have been boring as heck for the playful goddess of wisdom, Athena, and, well, no self-respecting storyteller, Homer included, would have been willing to destroy the entire suspense of the second half of the Odyssey by simply telling Telemachus and telling Penelope that, don't worry, your dad or your husband is indeed going to be coming home. So, we needed this road trip. Telemachus and Athena, and Athena incidentally disguised as the copper trader mentor, sailed all night long and in the morning they arrived at the kingdom of Pylos. Now, if you traveled with me through Trojan War the podcast, you already know King Nestor of Pylos very well indeed. King Nestor, going back 20 years to the very start of the Trojan War epic, was, how do I put this, a very well-meaning but very long-winded teller of stories. And, ladies and gentlemen, to be charitable to Nestor, if you could hang in, if you could be patient, and if you could wait and listen without nodding off, then usually at the end of Nestor's long-winded speeches was some real nugget of genuine wisdom. Now, Telemachus, of course, knew absolutely nothing about Nestor's reputation as a long-winded storyteller. All that Telemachus knew about Nestor is that Nestor was a hero, a capital H-E-R-O hero from his father's generation of heroes. And consequently, Telemachus, arriving at the gates of Nestor's palace in Pylos, was understandably scared to death. He had never talked to a man from his father's mythic generation. So as they approached the gates, Mentor slash Athena in the lead and Telemachus faltering more and more cautiously behind, Athena had actually had to buck up the lad's courage. Now, Telemachus, you must not be shy. Go right up to Nestor. That is why you sailed here, Telemachus. But Mentor, Telemachus had replied, how can I speak to Nestor? How, how can I put myself forward like that? I, I'm not an experienced speaker, and as a young man, I feel awkward talking to elders. And folks, just an aside, but I think that Athena, aside from being the goddess of practical wisdom, must have also been the goddess of eternal patience with immature young teenagers. Because by this point, you begin to think that what Athena would like to reply is, Telemachus, damn it, just grow a pair. Go up and talk to the man. But it's not actually what she said. 
Rather, she, or mentor he, kept his or her cool and responded as follows. Telemachus, just start speaking. Surely some god will put the right words into your mouth. I do not think you were born without heaven's favor, Telemachus. And, of course, Athena knew that she would be the god providing Telemachus with the necessary deific courage. So, they approached the gates of Nestor's palace. Well, soon they were observed and immediately flawless, absolutely flawless, textbook Xenia followed. And for the next few pages of Homer's Odyssey, well, there is lots of eating, lots of drinking, lots of libations, and lots of prayers made to the Olympian gods. And Athena, disguised as mentor, is having a particularly fine old time in this section of the Odyssey, as she proposes toast after toast and prayer after prayer to none other than, well, herself. But eventually, once all of the guests were fully fed, fully washed, fully watered, and entirely taken care of, Xenia-wise, then it was appropriate for Nestor to pose the now appropriate question. Strangers, who are you? Where did you sail from? Why have you come? Are you on a trading voyage? Or do you wander at random over the seas? Like pirates, risking your own lives and bringing ruin to other men. And folks, if that particular passage sounds familiar to you, then, well, it should. And I need to remind you that the Odyssey was originally not a book, but was actually a live story. And Homer's Odyssey, most scholars agree, would have taken about 24 hours of live performance time to tell. And so, given such a massive amount of content to memorize, well, Bronze Age storytellers developed a whole series of repeatable stock phrases that they could insert into different places into the plot where appropriate. And what you have just heard from Nestor is one of those stock phrases. So, you heard it before. You actually heard it from Polythemus, when Odysseus and his companions arrived inside of the cave. Here's what Polythemus said. Strangers, who are you? Why are you here? What is the country you came from? Are you here on a trading voyage, or do you wander at random over the seas, like pirates, risking your own lives and bringing ruin to other men? The very same phrase as Nestor uses, with just a slight change in tone and intonation. But... Little lesson on Bronze Age storytelling and the oral tradition in place. Let's return to the plot. Nestor asked the question, and Telemachus, he responded. Homer reports that, quote, Athena gave him confidence deep in his heart to ask about his absent father and to gain a noble reputation for himself. And, well, Homer wasn't exaggerating, Telemachus actually posed a thoughtful and even an eloquently phrased question. I came to gather news about my father, long-suffering Odysseus. They say that he fought with you to sack the city of Troy. So I beg you, tell me, did you see him die? Or do you have any news about where he may be? You need not sweeten what you say, in pity or from embarrassment. Just tell me straight what your eyes saw of my father. 
And then, ladies and gentlemen, Nestor answered. And answered. And answered. And answered some more. And I will spare you the entire length and breadth of the answer, except for my very favorite line from it, which I will quote. If you stayed here five years, or even six years, and kept on asking me, you would get bored and go back home again before my story came to an end. But the gist of Nestor's windy answer was actually pretty grim. Sorry, kid. The last time I saw your old man was on the day he sailed from Troy. Haven't seen or heard a thing from him since. Oh, and uh, no doubt you have heard about Agamemnon's noble son, young Orestes. A lot about your age, I'd think. And how fortunate that Agamemnon had a son, willing to stand up and to take revenge upon the wicked people who conspired against him. And with that little pivot, well, Nestor was into the Odyssey's very favorite cautionary tale. The tale we have already heard many times of Clytemnestra, Aegisthus, and noble, vengeance-seeking young Orestes. Nestor continued, While we fought and labored at Troy, that layabout Aegisthus sat safe at home, seducing Clytemnestra, noble wife of Agamemnon. For a while, she scorned his foul suggestions, since her heart was good. But finally, fate forced the queen to yield. Uh, and not that there's any need for you to worry about the faithlessness of your own dear mother, kid. And already much less than subtle Nestor implied. Uh, but the moral is, uh, if you're looking for a moral, you must not stay away too long, dear boy, when all those proud suitors are lurking around your mother inside of your father's house. And that, ladies and gentlemen, well, that pretty well concluded everything of use that Nestor had to provide to young Telemachus concerning his missing father. So the balance of Telemachus's stay on Pylos was essentially nothing more than a series of feasts, sacrifices, libations, and, of course, more long-winded stories by Nestor himself. But... On the final day of the visit, there was one sensible and possibly even insightful suggestion from windy old King Nestor. Nestor suggested that Telemachus travel overland to Sparta in the company of Nestor's youngest son, a lad of about Telemachus's age named Pisastratus. And this particular son of Nestor's, all accounts seem to suggest, had, at Telemachus's age, much more of a kingly bearing demeanor and confidence about him than did young Telemachus. So perhaps Nestor was wise enough to recognize that what Telemachus could use at this stage was not to be mentored by an old copper trader named Mentor, but rather to be given a, well, pure positive role model, if you will, in Nestor's youngest son. So it seemed like a perfect plan. The two 20-year-old lads would take a fast chariot on the two days it would take to get to Sparta, and meanwhile, Mentor slash Athena would bow out of the proceedings and take flight discreetly back to Ithaca to prepare the next stage of our plot. 
But of course, Athena, always one for the grand departure in the pyrotechnics, could not resist before she, disguised as mentor, bowed out of the story to flash a little bit of her deific brilliance so that Nestor and all concerned would once again realize that their feasting, their banquets, their celebrations, and their deliberations had all been graced by an Olympian god. And then, well, it was time for a road trip. And folks for young Telemachus, sheltered and kept under the protective skirts of his mother for the full 20 years of his life, this just might have been the coolest two days that had ever, ever happened to the young prince. On a fast chariot, accompanied by a buddy of his own age, tooling down the Peloponnesian highway towards the kingdom of Sparta. And of course, well, there are some life skills that a mentor or a god can teach you, but there are other life skills best learned by a more mature and worldly buddy of your own age. But whatever the case, because Homer tells us nothing that happened during that 48-hour road trip, but at the end of the road trip, the fast chariot pulled in to the kingdom of Sparta. And they arrived at the palace of Menelaus and of Helen of Troy. A woman we've heard of and a woman who, well, Menelaus preferred to think of as Helen of Sparta. Now, folks, I need to pause here for a moment. Because something is going to happen during Telemachus's visit with Menelaus and Helen, which is absolutely fascinating. In fact, it's deliciously indulgent and, well, gossipy in the extreme. But in order for us to have fun and to thoroughly enjoy what's going to happen, I need to provide us all with a wee little bit of a refresher on some of the details, some of the character, and some of the plot that happened way back inside of the world of Trojan War, the podcast. In short, plot that happened between 10 and 20 years earlier. So here's what we all need to know. Helen of Troy was the most beautiful woman to ever walk the face of the earth. Her mother was a Greek beauty named Leda, and her father was a rapist deadbeat dad named Zeus, king of the gods. And Helen, of course, was the offspring of Zeus's rape of Leda. Fast forward a few years to when Helen is now 14 and recognized as the most ravishing woman in the world. Her stepfather, Tyndarus, decided the best thing to do with a ravishing 14-year-old daughter was to auction her off to the highest bidder. And that was the day in which Helen became Helen of Sparta. Menelaus won the bidding ward and took Helen back home. The next couple of years in the Spartan estate of Helen and Menelaus's marriage, we know very little about. The only concrete detail we have is that they produced a daughter, a girl named Hermione. Fast forward a few more years. A Trojan prince arrives at the Spartan royal estate as a guest of King Menelaus. The Trojan prince's name is Paris. He's young, he's charming, he's devastatingly good-looking, and he is absolutely self-absorbed, vacuous, and clueless. And the very next thing you know, Helen and Paris are back in Troy, married to each other, and Helen of Sparta has now become Helen of Troy. Incidentally, Paris has just won himself the award as the greatest violator of the Protocols of Xenia in the entire history of the planet. He arrived at his host's estate and somehow left with his host's wife. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to big 
gossipy question number one, which has dominated conversation on Helen, Paris, and Menelaus for the past 3,000 years. And the question is this. Was Helen A, kidnapped against her will? B, did she run away voluntarily? Or C, was she compelled to leave Sparta by the will of the goddess Aphrodite? But the Greek world really didn't care about answering that question. They simply declared war on Troy and, well, we had the Trojan War, which lasted for the next 10 deadlocked years. And then finally, in the final night of that war, 10 years into it, Odysseus conceptualized his famous wooden horse ruse, and the city of Troy burned to the ground, and every major Trojan of consequence was killed in one dire night. Now, here's what we need to know. On the night that Troy was burning to the ground, Menelaus of Sparta, part of the Greek army, spent that night storming through the burning ruins of the city of Troy, searching for Helen. Now, what he was planning on doing when he found Helen in the burning ruins remains an open question. Some authoritative scholars and sources say that Menelaus was searching for Helen so that he could kill the faithless bitch himself and watch her die. But an equal number of authoritative sources argue that for the entire 10 years in which Helen had been holed up in Troy with Paris, Menelaus had never once stopped believing that Helen was a victim abducted against her will, and he wanted nothing more than to go and save his fairy tale damsel in distress. Now, we don't know what Menelaus' motivations were, and we don't know why Helen was there. All we do know is, when Menelaus did find Helen that night in the burning ruins of the city, something happened between the two of them inside of Helen's bedroom, and the two of them emerged from the burning gates of Troy, hand in hand. And then, of course, they sailed home back to Sparta. Except that they didn't sail home back to Sparta. Somehow, they got shipwrecked on the return voyage, and they spent a seven-years-long detour inside of Egypt. And during that time, Menelaus managed to accumulate a sizable hoard of treasure, making him the richest man in the entire Greek world. But now, while Helen and Menelaus were back in a renovated, updated, and decidedly non-Spartan Sparta. And that brings us to the second large gossipy question, which has dominated conversation for the past 3,000 years. How has the marriage of Helen and Menelaus managed to deal with those awkward and difficult 10 Paris years. And in a moment, folks, we'll see the answer to that question. But that brings us back to the present. Telemachus and Pisastratus arrived at the front gates of the palace, and they appropriately begged for hospitality. And of course, in the proper protocols of Xenia, they did not identify themselves to their host. They were tired, they were hungry, they were thirsty, and after a long day of tooling down the Peloponnesian highway in a chariot, both of them were in bad need of a hot bath and some clean clothes. All of which would be provided before it would be appropriate for Menelaus to presume to ask his two young guests their names or the nature of their business. So far, so good. Except that when Menelaus saw the two young men at his front gate and took a close look at them, even through the dust and the road grime, it was very obvious to Menelaus 
that he was looking at Odysseus's own son. Telemachus's features, his eyes, his face, his stature were, as we know, pretty well identical to his dad's. Now, Menelaus didn't reveal this knowledge to his two guests. That would have been inappropriate. But then, shamelessly or generously, and I'll let each of you, my listeners, decide for yourself, Menelaus launched into a quite deliberate and incredibly maudlin memory of Odysseus speech. A speech clearly intended to evoke a response in Odysseus's son, Telemachus. So here's how it had happened. Telemachus and Pisastratus were being ushered by Menelaus through the palace to the guest rooms, where they, of course, would be bathed and given nice clean clothes before being treated to a wonderful meal. And as they wandered through Menelaus's rather stunning palace, Telemachus had been completely blown away by just the quality, the wealth, and the opulence of the place. Remember, Telemachus had never actually left the quite Spartan island accommodations of Ithaca. And Telemachus had quietly, under his breath, commented on the wealth to his traveling companion, Pisastratus. Can you believe your eyes? Just look at the brilliance, the gold, the amber, the silver, the ivory. This house is filled with treasure. It looks as magnificent as the palace of Zeus himself. I'm in total awe. But folks, Telemachus must not have been whispering quite as low as he had intended. Because Menelaus, the host, had overheard the exchange and immediately replied, No man's palace compares to that of Zeus, dear boys, since his palace is everlasting. But when it comes to men... Very few are my equals in the wealth that I have acquired. But it gives me little pleasure to own all of these riches. I would rather have come home with just a third of it, if only my comrades who had fought beside me on the plains of Troy had survived. Often, I sit here, alone, heartsick with grief, soothing myself with tears, and I miss them all. But one man I miss the most of all. When I remember him, I can neither eat nor sleep, since no one labored like him. Odysseus. His destiny was suffering, and mine the endless pain of missing him. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is absolutely no doubt that Menelaus's speech and his words were calculated to evoke an emotional response in young Telemachus. And whether we are expected to take Menelaus's protestations of grief at face value or not is really an open question. Uh, but whatever the case, the Maudlin speech and the memories of Odysseus evoked its intended response on its intended audience. Poor Telemachus, doing his best to not cry anymore when he got upset. Well, Telemachus started to cry in spite of himself. And an awkward moment ensued, until the awkward moment was broken up by the arrival of a third party. Helen, Menelaus' wife, came downstairs and noticed her guests. 
And Helen wasted absolutely no time on the niceties or the protocols of Zinnia. Immediately, Helen quite enthusiastically stated the obvious. Menelaus, my lord, do we know the names of these men who have come as our guests? Perhaps, well, I know I shouldn't speak frankly, but I feel that I must. I have never seen such a resemblance between two people as between that young man and Odysseus. He must surely be Odysseus's son. And with that, well, the protocols of Xenia broke down, and within a few moments, all was revealed. Telemachus confessed that he indeed was Odysseus's son and explained that he had come to Sparta on a mission to see if Menelaus knew anything about the whereabouts of his missing father. Well, there was still the practical matter of the baths, some fresh clothes, and then a meal to attend to. So uh, the two travelers were sent off to the appropriate guest rooms. And sometime later, let's guess 45 minutes to an hour or so, everybody repaired downstairs again for a dinner that had been set out by Menelaus and Helen's slaves. But it turned out that the conversation turned back to missing Odysseus, and before long, Menelaus, who did seem to be in some form of ongoing and inconsolable grief at missing the man, was into his tears again, and that prompted more tears from Telemachus, and then Pisastratus ended up in tears too, because it turned out that he revealed he had had an older brother who had actually died at Troy. And so the evening was setting out to genuinely suck. Everybody was in tears, and nobody had an appetite for the splendid meal in front of them. That is, until Helen got an idea. Helen decided to save the evening by drugging the dinner wine. So here's the story. Menelaus came home from his seven years in Egypt with a massive hoard of treasure. Helen came home from her seven years in Egypt with only one thing, an incredibly powerful narcotic. A narcotic Homer tells us so powerful that, in his words, quote, It dissolves all grief and anger and banishes remembrance of every sorrow. Whoever drinks this mixture will shed no tears that day, not even if both his mother and his father died, or if somebody came and stabbed his son or his brother in front of his very own eyes. So Helen had come into possession of this drug, and at this particular juncture in the transpiring-to-be-miserable evening, Helen, the hostess, had excused herself from the dinner table, I suppose ostensibly to supervise the mixing of the wine, and then slipped a little bit of the narcotic into the gentleman's drinks. Now, whether Helen slipped a little bit of the drug into her own wine, we don't know. Homer does not tell us, but Homer does imply two things. First of all, that the three men at the dinner table were quite unaware that their wine had been drugged. And second of all, and possibly more interesting for our gossip, Homer leaves us with the distinct impression that Helen had done this drugging of her husband's wine many times before. Well, the evening proceeded, and after a glass or two of the drugged wine, the evening went from being miserable and maudlin into being very, very interesting indeed. The mood improved, the pain vanished, and as the wine continued to flow, 
the answers to our two gossipy questions, ladies and gentlemen. Well, those answers were soon provided. So here's what happened. At some point during the dining, Helen offered to tell the three gentlemen a story. Sit here and eat, and I will entertain you with a story. Enjoy it. It is a story quite fitting to the times. Now, the story that Helen launched into, folks, was actually, on the surface at least, a story about Odysseus. But you didn't need to be too bright or to scrape too much beneath the surface of the story to realize that Helen was actually telling a story about herself. And what Helen was telling was not really so much a story, but a thesis disguised in story form. The story that she related involved Odysseus during the siege of the city of Troy. And Helen explained how at some late stage in the siege of Troy, likely in the ninth year, Odysseus, in order to gather some reconnaissance and some intel on the situation inside of the Trojan walls, had deliberately disguised himself as a beggar and then had the crap beat out of him by fellow Greek warlords before slipping inside of Troy's walls. Well, Odysseus, at liberty, had wandered inside of the city, gathering the intel that he required, until he had stumbled across and come face to face with none other than Helen herself. And Helen, of course, had immediately recognized Odysseus through his clever disguise. Well, in her story, Helen explained that she had motioned to Odysseus and discreetly brought him back to her own quarters, where she had washed him, bathed him, dressed his wounds, and then listened to Odysseus explain to her the Greeks' master plan for taking the city of Troy. The plan, of course, involving Odysseus' famous wooden horse. And then, according to Helen, she had helped Odysseus to secretly slip outside of Troy and back to the safety of the Greek lines. And then Helen had concluded her story to the three gentlemen, explaining how she had felt about the entire evening and her visit with Odysseus. And I rejoiced in my heart, for I was already longing to go back home, and I deeply regretted the madness that Aphrodite had laid on my heart when she had enticed me there to Troy and had made me abandon my people, my home, and my husband, a man as intelligent as he is handsome. And so that, folks, was, inside of Helen's story, a thinly veiled thesis on Helen's version of how she had ended up in Troy, abducted by Aphrodite, and how she had felt the entire time she was there, thoroughly and 100% sympathetic to Menelaus and the fellow Greeks' cause. And I will, of course, leave as food for your thought and your own personal interpretation and consideration, the simile with which Helen had concluded her story, referring to Menelaus as my husband, a man as intelligent as he is handsome. And of course, that simile offers two profoundly different readings. And I will remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that nowhere in the collected body of literature 
on Menelaus is there any account of the man being particularly handsome. But, whatever the case, Helen concluded her story. And it might have been a good thing for all parties concerned had the evening ended there. It could have ended with a nice romantic moment. Menelaus could have reached over, gently touched Helen on the wrist and said, Ah, oh, gee, honey, and I think you're pretty special too. And then the two of them could have repaired up to the bedroom and Menelaus could have hoped he had not consumed too much wine to not end the evening in fine style. And ladies and gentlemen, if that had have been how the Helen Menelaus evening had have ended, then, well, we would have charitably smiled and agreed, as outsiders observing it, that it was all for the best. Every marriage has its awkward and uncomfortable histories to deal with, and if Helen and Menelaus chose to paper over those Paris years with a story of Helen as a damsel in distress, very much in love with her husband Menelaus, then whether that story be fact or fiction, well, more power to the couple for managing to make something work of their marriage. But... At that point in the evening, instead of calling it a good night, Menelaus, deep into his cups and feeling no pain, decided to counter his wife's story with an Odysseus story of his very own. Menelaus's story picked up with the night of Odysseus's famous wooden horse. Now you will recall that Odysseus's wooden horse was chock full of the finest warriors and the best thinkers in the entire Greek army, and that the Trojans had foolishly pulled that horse inside the safety of their own city walls. So all that was left now for the Greeks to do in order to win the Trojan War in a night was to stay quietly inside the hollow belly of that horse wait until nightfall, wait until the people of Troy had fallen sound asleep, and then secretly exit from the hollow belly of that horse, open the gates of Troy from the inside, and invite Agamemnon and his hundred thousand Greek soldiers to pour into the sleeping, unsuspecting city. But then, late in the evening, according to Menelaus's account of the story to his dinner guests, Something unanticipated happened outside at the base of that wooden horse. According to Menelaus, who was one of the warriors hidden in the horse, alongside Odysseus, incidentally, according to Menelaus, sometime late in the evening, he heard the voice of his wife or his former wife, Helen. Now, apparently, Helen had decided to take an evening stroll at the base of the horse and was walking around the perimeter of the horse, tapping the hollow belly of the horse with her hands. And according to Menelaus, as Helen circled that horse, she was deliberately mimicking the voices of the wives of the Greek warlords currently hiding in the horse calling out the men's names, pretending that she was that man's wife. Women that the men, of course, had not seen for ten long years. And according to Menelaus, here's what happened inside of the horse. Three times 
you went around the hollow belly, touching the hiding place and calling on us Greeks by name. You put on different voices for each man's wife. And as I sat there with the other warlords and with Odysseus, we heard you calling, and we were tempted to go out and meet you, or to call out to you from the inside. But immediately, Odysseus could sense our impulse, and he held us back, until you had walked away. Now, ladies and gentlemen, just pause to think about the situation that Menelaus is explaining. Had any one of the men inside of that horse called out to what he thought was his wife, well, all of the Greeks in the horse would have been revealed. And here's why. And this adds even more delicious element to Menelaus's story. On the night when Helen was walking around the outside of the horse, Helen was, according to Menelaus, accompanied by Deiphobus. And folks, you'll have to forgive me a small digression here. But in the last waning days of the Trojan War, Helen's husband Paris had been killed. And Helen had been summarily remarried to a crown prince in line for the Trojan throne named Deiphobus. And so on the night when Helen was circling the wooden horse, she was circling that horse in the company of a crown prince of Troy, her current husband, and a possible heir to the Trojan throne once old man Priam died. Now think about what might have happened. If even so much as one of those men had have called out into the night, Deiphobus would have heard it, summoned the guards, and the wooden horse, of course, would have been summarily burned to the ground with all of the best and the brightest of the Greeks burned alive inside that horse's hollow belly. And that, of course, would have put an end immediately to the entire Trojan War with absolute and complete and total Trojan victory. And as to Helen, married to Deiphobus, well, it might have only been a matter of days or weeks until Helen eventually became the new queen of Troy. And so, ladies and gentlemen, Menelaus's story, or thesis disguised as a story, was this. My wife Helen was a traitorous bitch, and she nearly cost the Greeks the war. She nearly killed me and you, young Telemachus. She nearly killed your dad, too. And ladies and gentlemen, well, the evening had taken a decidedly ugly turn for the worse. And I suppose what we could say is if in vino veritas, then, well, in drugged vino, perhaps a little bit too much veritas. And the ugliness of this marriage's unresolved and long-standing argument was now on display for all of the dinner guests to witness. And as to the unresolved question that we're interested in, who was telling the truth, Helen or Menelaus, and whose version of events is accurate, Helen or Menelaus's? Well, Homer quite playfully, and I imagine deliberately, leaves that as an open question. All I will personally conclude is that Helen's decision to drug her husband's wine 
with a drug which Homer reports, quote, takes all rage away, now seems as though it might be a sensible and precautionary thing for the woman to do. Well, the second day of the visit got off to a better start. First of all, Helen was nowhere in sight, and next, Menelaus in the morning proved to be in a positive, even effusive mood, and one wonders whether he even remembered the night before or whether Helen's drugs managed to take away memories of that sort of thing, too. Whatever the case, Menelaus hunted down young Telemachus and Pisastratus and, sitting the two of them down, launched into an epic story of his time in Egypt, which would have done even old Nestor proud. But eventually, one ray or nugget of information of use to Telemachus actually emerged from Menelaus's tale. According to Menelaus, who had heard this according to a reliable eyewitness, as late as one year ago, Odysseus had been very much alive, apparently being held prisoner on the island of a minor goddess named Calypso. Well, Menelaus concluded his story, and then, appreciating how polite, eager, and enthusiastic his audience had appeared to be, Menelaus invited Telemachus and Pistastratus to stay with him and with Helen for an additional 11 or 12 days. And then, Menelaus said, I quote, I will send you home with amazing guest gifts, three horses, a gleaming chariot, and a lovely cup so that you can pour gifts to the gods and always think of me. And again, folks, young Telemachus had shown remarkably great diplomacy intact. Here's what he said to Menelaus. Do not keep me here so long, my lord. Indeed, I would be glad to stay a year. I would not even miss my home. I get such pleasure listening to you. But... My poor friends are surely tired of waiting in Pylos. You really have made me stay too long. And for the gift, well, please only give me treasure. You keep your lovely horses. I, I cannot transport them all the way back to Ithaca. And, well, in Ithaca there are no fields or racetracks. It is only really good for goats there. Islands out at sea have no good horse grazing. Ours the very least of all. And of course, folks, Telemachus realized that the logistics of packing up three prize horses and a gleaming chariot, first for an overland journey and then for a journey by sea to Ithaca, well, that might have necessitated a lengthier stay in Sparta. So far better to sacrifice the chariot and horses and get out now with a lesser and more immediately transportable guest gift. And as to Menelaus, well, he seemed to not detect his young guest's haste to get out of Dodge. My boy, your words are proof of your good blood. So, of all the things in my hoard of treasure, I will give you my finest. A bowl crafted by the blacksmith god Hephaestus himself. And then Telemachus, after dodging yet another story that Menelaus was launching into, of how he had come to obtain a bowl, apparently created by a god, 
Telemachus managed to effect his exit. And he and his traveling companion were back on the road, by chariot to Pylos, and then Telemachus on his own, by ship, back to Ithaca. So, though he still had not proven himself to be a soldier, young Telemachus, courtesy of Athena's rescue mission, had certainly acquired some of the confidence, some of the social graces, and some of the political insights necessary to, someday, becoming Ithaca's king. But, ladies and gentlemen, I would caution you to not exhale quite yet. Because at this point in the tale, Homer brings the action back to the island kingdom of Ithaca. First of all, into Odysseus's palace, where we meet Penelope, who is in quite the rage because she has just discovered why she has not seen her son Telemachus for the past week or so. And under some intense Penelope questioning, the housemaid had revealed that Telemachus had made her promise not to tell Mum, but that he had taken off on a road trip to Pylos and to Sparta. And Penelope's response to learning that Telemachus had slipped through her grasp and was off on a road trip tells us everything we need to know about Penelope's parenting priorities. Here is what she said to the house servant. If I had learned that he had been planning this voyage, I swear he would never have left Ithaca, or it would have been over my dead body. And I think why Athena decided a road trip was necessary for the maturation and development of the lad is now pretty well clear. But then, Homer, having taken us in to show us Penelope's response to the road trip, takes us outside of the palace where we find the suitors. And Homer shares with us the suitors' response to the news that young Telemachus is currently out of town. Here's what happened. One of the lesser suitors approached the ringleader of the gang, the suitor named Antinous, with a question of Antinous. Uh, so Antinous, do you have any idea when Telemachus will be returning from Pylos? You see, he borrowed my ship and I need it back. I, I gotta run some errands with it. And upon hearing the question, Antinous positively exploded. Can you believe it? That disrespectful young puppy, he's pulled off his expedition. The one we swore would never take place. Now he is sure to cause us more trouble. And any plans of the suitors to stage a bloodless coup, well, they evaporated instantly. It was clearly time to kill the heir apparent. Get me a ship. Get me twenty men. I will go lie in ambush for him in the straits between Ithaca and the mainland. And that is where Homer leaves our story. And me, taking my cue from Homer, this too is where I will leave our story and young Telemachus. So ladies and gentlemen, in upcoming episode 10, we will be returning to the Odysseus parallel plotline story. And I will be telling you all of the amazing, 
interesting and oh-so-fascinating things that have been happening to Odysseus. Well, Athena has been busy rescuing Odysseus's young son. And as to our post-story commentary to follow, well, I think given the recurring theme of the last two episodes of Odyssey the Podcast, now might be an ideal time for me to continue a storyline that I began way, way back in the post-story commentary of episode number nine of Trojan War the Podcast. And in that commentary, I had introduced you to the story of the horrible house of Atreus, the story of Agamemnon's ill-fated and absolutely over-the-top nasty family tree. And I brought you back to generations before Agamemnon, and I brought you right up to the point where Agamemnon and Clytemnestra were about to have their rather awkward falling out. Now, in Trojan War, the podcast, I had not proceeded further than that point in the story for fear of plot spoilers in my post-story commentary. But now, here in Odyssey, the podcast, we know how things end for Agamemnon and his estranged wife, and we know the story of young Orestes. So I'm going to pick up the horrible House of Atreus post-story commentary with a quick summary of all the ugly things that happened to Agamemnon and his ancestors from the very moment that Agamemnon arrived back home following the Trojan War. I think you will find it deliciously horrifying good fun. So in a few minutes, it's off to the post-story commentary. The Horrible House of Atreus, Part 2. So welcome, folks, to the post-story commentary. And as I promised you, this particular post-story commentary is going to be all about the horrible house of Atreus, the family of Agamemnon, Clytemnestra, and young Orestes, the lad we have been hearing so much about during our recent two Telemachus episodes. And folks, just so you know, our sources for the story of the family curse going forward in this post-story commentary include the following. 1. Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, written circa 730 or so BCE. 2. Aeschylus's Orestian Trilogy of Plays, written in 458 BCE. And 3. Euripides's play titled Iphigenia at Aulis, written in 407 BCE. So, now on to how the curse of the House of Atreus manifests itself in what we might call the Trojan War generation of individuals. So let's start off with an easy one. Atreus's youngest son, a man called Menelaus. Now, on the surface, folks, you might think that Menelaus somehow managed to rather dodge the family curse. I mean, after all, he did get to marry the most beautiful and desired woman in the entire history of the freaking planet, Helen herself. Making Menelaus, of course, the proud owner of history's first and most famous celebrity trophy bride. So it doesn't seem as though the man has been very badly cursed. But remember this. That trophy bride then ran off with another man, Paris of Troy, 
And overnight, Menelaus was instantaneously transformed from proud owner of history's most gorgeous woman into cuckolded and embarrassed husband of history's least faithful wife. And because this was the Bronze Age, and the Greeks were a proudly and violently patriarchal people, well, Menelaus could not simply accept the misfortune of a faithless wife and a failed marriage and then move on. Rather, Menelaus was honor-bound, duty-bound, and Bronze Age culture-bound to wage war and to die on a bloody battlefield of some foreign nation if necessary in order to attempt to bring his faithless wife back home again. So, to conclude, why was Menelaus cursed? Because his faithless wife had forced the entire Greek world into a ten years long hell that was the Trojan War. So now on to Agamemnon, Atreus's eldest son. And on Agamemnon, well, everybody, Homer, Aeschylus, Euripides, everybody, in fact, is in total agreement. This guy was cursed. So the story goes like this. When Helen ran off to Troy with Paris, Agamemnon sincerely believed that he had no choice but to do what he could to restore his brothers and, by extension, his family's insulted honor. And so Agamemnon mobilized an army. Now, many historians, myself included, would argue that Helen's infidelity came at an opportune time for the Greek world, who, for a whole series of economic reasons, was just itching for an excuse to actually attack Troy. So, like any war, ancient or modern, well, honor plays a part in it, particularly in the optics of it. Usually, geopolitics is the bottom line. But Homer, Aeschylus, and Euripides prefer to tell tales of honor in their stories. And since we are telling the story of the House of Atreus' curse, well, let's stick to the official version of the honor stuff and not get into the underlying geopolitics. So back to Agamemnon. Once Agamemnon had his army ready to sail to invade Troy, well, then the gods stepped into the story, and they demanded that Agamemnon sacrifice his daughter, Iphigenia, in order to produce favorable sailing winds in order to actually get that armada to Troy. And that put poor Agamemnon into a wee bit of a bind. He sincerely believed that it was his duty to avenge his brother's lost honor, but, well, now the price of doing it, the gods had decreed, was that Agamemnon kill his own daughter first. Well, Agamemnon agonized over the sacrifice daughter decision for a little while. He might have actually even cared about her. But the man, well, he really, really, really did want to invade Troy. So in the end, Troy went out over his daughter. Agamemnon stuck a dagger into his daughter's heart and headed off for glorious war. And then ten years later, the war against Troy over, the city of Troy burned to the ground, and Agamemnon's ships loaded with treasure. Agamemnon, the conquering hero of Troy, 
returned back home. Which leads us, of course, quite nicely, ladies and gentlemen, into the story of Clytemnestra. Because Clytemnestra had been patiently waiting in Argos for ten long years, plotting her revenge, eager to stick a dagger into Agamemnon's heart, just like he had stuck a dagger into their daughters. Well, the day came. Agamemnon's ship arrived in the harbor, and then a massive team of draft animals hauled cartload after cartload of rich Trojan treasure up to the front gates of Agamemnon's palace, where a triumphant king found his wife Clytemnestra waiting and smiling demurely, seemingly quite joyous to see her husband back home after his long ten years away. But uh, then Agamemnon somewhat dampened the homecoming mood, saying something to his wife along the lines of this. So, honey, I'm home, and, uh, well, I've brought something special from Troy with me. Uh, honey, I'd like you to meet my smoking hot new sex toy concubine. Uh, her name is Cassandra. Uh, Cassandra, this is my wife. Her name is Clytemnestra. Uh, so, well, as I head off to unpack my treasure and take a bath, uh, you two try to play nicely together. Understand? Now, folks, just a little wee bit about this Cassandra. Cassandra was the daughter of the late King Priam of Troy. And I actually tell her full tragic story in episode 20 of Trojan War, the podcast. But the short version of the story here is that Cassandra had been granted the so-called gift of prophecy by the god Apollo. But because Cassandra had had the temerity to then spurn Apollo's sexual advances, the jilted god had decided to curse the girl. So along with the gift of clairvoyance, Apollo had added an additional gift that nobody ever would believe a single thing that the poor girl ever said. Well, as a consequence, Cassandra, during the course of the Trojan War, never being listened to when she could have predicted what was going to happen next in that war and saved her fellow Trojans, well, gradually Cassandra had gone quite mad and now the poor girl was crazy as a loon. But given the twists and kinks in the Atreus family tree, that fact likely made her even more sexually appealing to her new owner, King Agamemnon. So let's move on now to Clytemnestra's response to the arrival of her husband's spanking new sex toy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the fact is that concubines were a fact of life in Bronze Age Greece. Every self-respecting man had one, and a king could be expected to have quite a few. So in that sense, Clytemnestra would not have all been surprised or possibly even feel betrayed in the way that I assume a modern woman would. But still, you gotta wonder about the man's timing. I mean, for Zeus's sake, 
He had been away from his wife for ten freaking long years, and the first thing he did on his arrival home was to introduce his long-suffering and presumably faithful wife to a smoking-hot young sex toy? I got to imagine, ladies and gentlemen, that even in the Bronze Age, it's hard to not think that it would have stung Clytemnestra more than a little bit. But it was hardly going to matter, of course, because Clytemnestra had laid her plans for revenge already and years earlier. So nothing that Agamemnon, her husband, was going to do now could actually change those plans or ameliorate the end that she had in store for him. So Agamemnon stepped into his home, stepped into his bath, and there he met Aegisthus. And now, on to Aegisthus's part in the horrible house of Atreus' family curse. So the story goes like this. Sometime in the decade since her husband had departed for Troy, Clytemnestra had met Aegisthus. And when the two of them sat down and compared notes, they both quickly realized that they shared a common hatred for Agamemnon. So a quick refresher on Aegisthus's hatred, if you will. Aegisthus was the son of Thyestes and of Thyestes's daughter, yes, his daughter, an unfortunate soul named Pelopia. And the only reason why Thyestes had raped his daughter Pelopia had been in order to produce this particular son, Aegisthus. And young Aegisthus, pretty well from the moment he was born, well, he had been repeatedly told by his father that his only life's work was to seek revenge on a man named Atreus. And Atreus, you will recall, was Thyestes' brother and the murderer of Thyestes' other sons, who Atreus had killed, butchered, cooked, and then served up to their father. So now, 25 or so years later in our story, Aegisthus was an adult, indoctrinated by dad and by his culture since birth, into a raging desire to kill all things Atreus. And since old man Atreus was now dead, that meant that Aegisthus was going to have to take revenge on one of Atreus's two sons, either Agamemnon or Menelaus. Well, Aegisthus had considered his options. First of all, he considered a wee bit of revenge adultery, if you will by sleeping with Menelaus's particularly hot wife, Helen. But that proved problematic, as Helen was already out of town in Troy, committing some adultery of her own, if you will. But then, to Aegisus's relief, Agamemnon's wife Clytemnestra had turned out to be available, and when Aegisus made his inquiries, it turned out that Clytemnestra was more than willing to participate in a little wee bit of revenge adultery of her very own. Better still, since Agamemnon was off in Troy fighting a war, 
Aegisthus' moving into the palace and setting up shop with Agamemnon's wife proved to be easy as pie. So, Aegisthus and Clytemnestra moved into the palace at Argos together. They both had quite different motivations for wishing revenge on Agamemnon, but they both agreed that they wanted the bastard dead. And when Agamemnon arrived back in Argos, following his ten years' tenure in Troy, well, Clytemnestra pretended to be absolutely delighted to see him and thrilled at the prospect of sharing his bed with a hot new concubine. And then, when Agamemnon's back was turned, she and Aegisthus threw a net over the man and hacked him to death with an axe. And folks, though it hardly matters to our story, Clytemnestra also hacked Cassandra to death too. Now, Agamemnon was shocked and surprised by being murdered. Cassandra was not. She, of course, had seen it coming. And so to wrap up, folks, with Agamemnon now dead, Aegisthus had done what society had expected him to do as an obedient, vengeance-fulfilling son. And Clytemnestra, she had done what she believed she had to do in avenging her daughter, Iphigenia's murder. And the never-ending dance of blood-feud vengeance, family honor, and bloody death carried on. And, ladies and gentlemen, at this point, I feel like what I should really do is break into that Circle of Life song. You know the one from the Disney Lion King movie? Uh, you'll recall the Lion King, right? The story of a young prince named Simba who learns that his uncle has murdered his father and then is compelled by his culture, his religion, and his dead ancestors to set in motion a circle of death and murder that uncle himself. You know, like that children's story. But the point is here, in both the world of Homeric epic and the world of Disney's Lion King, the gods, the culture, and the previous generations always demand a blood-soaked revenge killing. Or possibly what I should do right now is leave Disney and hop over to Shakespeare instead and remind you of the story of Hamlet, which basically tells the same plot but without Disney's sing-along soundtrack. But I think you get the idea. The ancient Greeks folks might have been the first people to tell this story, but the circle of death seems to be a song and a story and a movie and a play that our species never, ever, ever gets tired of telling. Game of Thrones now, anyone? Okay, time for me to move on. To the next generation of the Atreus family. Because Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, of course, had a son. A lad named Orestes. So the story goes that Orestes was just a young boy when his mom and his stepdad killed his father Agamemnon, and that then young Orestes somehow managed to escape from the palace of Argos and go into hiding. Now, the specifics of how he escaped is not documented anywhere, but the why of his escape is pretty obvious. As the biological son of Agamemnon, 
it would only have been a matter of time before Aegisthus, having taken his revenge on the father, would then have quite rightly decided to finish the revenge duty by also killing the father's son. So whatever the case, Orestes vanished from the scene for quite a few years, while Aegisthus and Clytemnestra, naively believing that their place in the world was now secure, they carried on governing Mycenae from their capital city in Argos. But then, when Orestes came of age, and we don't know what age that was, but let's speculate 18 or 20 or so, about the same age as young Telemachus is in the Odyssey, well, Orestes was, of course, honor-bound to avenge his father Agamemnon's murder. And if Orestes, a good gods-fearing and multi-generational blood-feud-respecting lad, had have had any compunctions about taking revenge, well, they were put to rest by a visit from the god Apollo himself, who told Orestes that he was required to do his duty and avenge his father's murder. But then poor Orestes found himself in a bit of a difficult bind. Because the killer of dad, unfortunately, was Orestes' own mum. And that left the young prince with a little bit of a poser. The only way to do the right thing in avenging his father would be to definitionally do the wrong thing in killing his mother. And folks, out of this bit of a poser of a problem, well, the playwright Aeschylus crafted his Orestian trilogy, one of the most influential dramas in world literature. The plays premiered in the Athenian Theatre Festival of 458 BCE, where they rightfully won Aeschylus' first prize in the contest. Play one in the trilogy is titled Agamemnon, and you already know the plot. Agamemnon returns home from the war, and he is killed by Clytemnestra and Aegisthus. So now on to play two a play titled The Libation Bearers, and this plot we do not know. So the story picks up some years later when Orestes, who has been hiding in exile, biding his time, decides to return to Argos in order to revenge his father by killing his mom. So in the play, Orestes manages to enter the palace in disguise and in short order, Orestes kills Aegisthus. And then his mother enters the room, sees Aegisthus dead, and learns in a dramatic reveal that it is her own son who has killed him. Well, mother begs for her life. Orestes wavers in his resolve knowing that killing a mother is a terrible thing and that there will be a consequence to him if he does so. But then the dutiful boy remembers Apollo's injunctions and so Orestes stabs his pleading mum to death. Now, the very moment he does so, 
Orestes has a target on his head. Because there is, ladies and gentlemen, an ancient race of deities, way, way, way older than Zeus's Olympian family, and those deities were called the Furies. And as to their task or their job in the universe, well, the Furies were charged with tracking down and then violently punishing and tormenting any human being who committed a particularly horrific murder. And stabbing one's mum to death, well, that met the Furies' criteria of particularly horrific. And so in the middle of the stage, the very moment that Orestes stabs his mum, well, the Furies arrive out of nowhere to hunt down and destroy Orestes for his horrific crime. And in Aeschylus' play, the Furies, as described by Aeschylus, conjure up, well, for me personally, the Dementors of yet another epic cycle, the Harry Potter world. The Furies are black-robed, dark, and dreadful creatures that make the blood run cold. And, of course, as are most creatures evil and loathsome in misogynistic Greece, the Furies are female. And as the second play in the Orestian trilogy comes to its dramatic conclusion, the Furies closing in on Orestes chase him, running in terror from the palace. Which leads us quite nicely into the final play in the trilogy. A play titled The Eumenides, E-U-M-E-N-I-D-E-S. And folks, Eumenides is just a synonym for the word Furies, if you're wondering. And the final play in the trilogy is all about those Eumenides. And a whole lot of other stuff, too. It's really actually a particularly awesome play. So here goes the basic plot. The action of the play opens with Orestes hiding out in the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. Somehow he has managed to run from Argos to Delphi without being captured by a single fury. But be that as it may, Orestes has run to Delphi because Delphi is the home of the god Apollo, and, well, Apollo is the guy that counseled Orestes to commit the murder of Mum in the first place. So as the play opens, the Furies are waiting just outside the temple of Apollo. Now, they have been temporarily put to sleep by the god Apollo, but only temporarily. Folks, the Furies are powerful forces, and though an Olympian god might be able to slow them down a little bit, they're a force that will not ultimately be denied its revenge. And Apollo, inside of the temple, with young Orestes, realizes that he's got to do something to save the lad now. So, while the Furies are asleep, Apollo decides to send Orestes, under the watchful protection of our favorite messenger god Hermes, down to the city of Athens, where Orestes then throws himself upon the protection of that city's patron goddess, a woman named Athena. You might have heard of her. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, moments later, the Furies, now wide awake, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and furious as ever, they arrive in Athens, turn to Athena, and demand that Athena turn Orestes over to them for his rightful punishment. And that's when things get interesting. Because Athena refuses to turn the boy over. Instead, she proposes a counteroffer to the Furies. Instead of the Furies deciding on Orestes' guilt, or instead of Athena choosing to simply use her deific superpowers to arbitrarily protect Orestes, Athena proposes a third way. Athena proposes a trial in which ten good Athenian citizens will sit as a jury and determine the fate of Orestes. And so, ladies and gentlemen, instead of the Bronze Age's system of blood feuds and multi-generational vendettas to resolve issues of justice, the final play of the Orestian trilogy offers up a quite modern criminal justice trial. And most of the play? Well, it's actually literature's very first courtroom drama. It's a lot of fun. Athena declares that she will sit as judge. Orestes, of course, is the defendant, and he is represented by his very own lawyer, the god Apollo. The plaintiff in the trial is the ghost of Clytemnestra, who, incidentally, wants her son sent to the Furies for maximum punishment possible. And, of course, the plaintiff's lawyer, or the plaintiff's entire legal team, to be more accurate, is represented by the Furies themselves. Well, the trial proceeds, and all of the arguments focus on the dilemma of duty that Orestes found himself trapped in. And the central question that the jury had to decide on was whether Orestes's duty to avenge his father's killer, Clytemnestra, did or did not take precedence over Orestes's duty to not kill his mother. The Furies, they argued passionately, furiously even, that no duty ever, under any circumstance, could exculpate a defendant from the absolute a priori duty of not killing a member of one's own family. Though they didn't phrase it in quite those legal terms. Meanwhile, Apollo, defending Orestes, well, Apollo made two separate and distinct legal arguments. First of all, Apollo conceded that he had possibly, well, uh, coerced the lad a little bit into killing his mum, and that in doing so, Apollo was actually simply reflecting the will and the edicts of Zeus. But mainly, ladies and gentlemen, Apollo, in his defense of Orestes, relied on a facts-of-life defense. And ladies and gentlemen, in order for us to understand this defense, I am now going to have to provide you with a quick primer, if you will, 
on the facts of life, circa 458 BCE. So here goes. Our best historical understanding of what Aeschylus, his contemporaries, and Homer's contemporaries from generations earlier, truly and genuinely believed about how babies are made. Ahem. Sexual reproduction is best understood by analogy. And by analogy, sexual reproduction is akin to a farmer planting a seed in some well-plowed soil. The seed contains within itself everything necessary for a new plant to grow. As for the soil, well, it is merely a moist and warm, safe place for that planted seed to sprout, to grow, and to ultimately push itself out into the new world. So to deconstruct the analogy, males provide the seed, and females provide only the soil in which that male seed grows. Put bluntly, a man's ejaculate contains within it 100% of the future child. Gentlemen, there is actually a very tiny, fully formed baby in our sperm. And the woman? She adds nothing to the creation of life process. She is merely an incubation chamber womb. So now, folks, armed with that brand new scientific understanding, circa 458 BCE, of just how babies are made, we can return to our courtroom drama and pick up with Apollo's primary argument for the defense. Folks, Apollo essentially argued that Clytemnestra was not really a member of Orestes's family. After all, she was, according to Apollo, just a safe and warm plot of land in which Orestes's father, Agamemnon, had chosen to plant his particular seed. That seed, of course, being the very, 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 very tiny, but wholly complete, baby Orestes. And so, according to Apollo, if it came down to a battle of competing duties, then Orestes's duty to his father, who was family, was certainly much greater than was Orestes's duty to his mother, who, for all intents and purposes, was essentially nothing more than a useful plot of land. And therefore, in Apollos's words, Orestes should be found not guilty of killing his mom. Because really, if you think about it, you can't be held guilty for killing dirt anyways. Now, can you? Now, folks, I imagine that you're thinking quite a lot of things at this particular juncture. But one of the things you might eventually get to thinking is this. The trial judge in this trial is a woman, the goddess Athena, no less, and Apollo, while channeling his very best Johnny Cochran, since a mum's worth shit, 
you must have quit. Well, Apollo might have just badly overplayed his hand. Surely, surely Athena, the goddess of wisdom, would not stand for that sort of misogyny or that sort of bad science inside of her courtroom. But I fear, folks, that here I'm going to have to disappoint you a bit. Because we humans, of course, have always created our gods in our own image. And Athena was the creation of a particularly misogynistic human culture. So Athena, rather than being offended by this vile attack on women, and on science and common sense too, for that matter, well, Athena actually immediately agreed with Apollo's argument, accepting the logic that men did not ever need women in order to produce children, as she herself had not, Athena declared, been produced by a woman, but rather had emerged full-grown from the head of her father Zeus. And with that argument, the defense concluded its case, and the Athenian jury retired to consider its verdict. Well, sometime later, the jury came back and declared that they had reached a deadlock. Five of the jurors were in favor of Apollo's argument, and the other five jurors favored the argument of the Furies. And, folks, I just invite you to pause to consider this verdict. So, let's deconstruct it. Five of the best and brightest Athenian citizens sitting on this jury actually agreed with Apollo's ludicrous and vile attack on women and on common sense. But the other five intelligent citizens who disagreed with Apollo... Well, they supported the Furies' argument in favor of vendettas, revenge killings, and multi-generational blood feuds. So, you can read into the jury's verdict whatever optimism or pessimism you wish. But the practical upshot was that Athena, the judge, was now required to weigh in with her vote and break the tie. And Athena found Orestes not guilty, and further declared that the house of Atreus's multi-generational blood feud was now officially over. A trial by jury had found Orestes not guilty of the murder of his mom, and so no further revenge killings were required, or, according to Athena, allowed. Any future plaintiffs to the matter? Well, they would have to settle their disputes with trials and with juries. As opposed to through the time-honored old ways of rape, incest, adultery, cannibalism, and murder. And so folks ended the trial. Save for one small unresolved matter. The matter of the Furies, who were now, of course even more furious than ever, and who immediately promised a reign of terror over Athens, over the Greek world, and possibly over all of humanity. They were pretty upset by the verdict having not gone their way. 
But Athena, the goddess of wisdom, managed through some flattery and some very well-chosen words to placate the Furies. And ultimately, she convinced them to abandon their ages-old pursuit of blood-vengeance justice and to, well, step into the modern world of courtroom justice instead. So in essence, the Furies exit Aeschylus' play repurposed. Not as Furies, but instead as the Kindly Ones and the future guardians of the Athenian criminal justice system. And so, folks, Aeschylus's Orestian trilogy actually comes to a quite happy, quite promising, and even optimistic end. So just a few brief concluding comments. First, on Athena. And you will have no doubt noticed that the Athena of Homer's Odyssey is a goddess with a profoundly different values system and worldview than is the Athena who shows up 300 years later in history in Aeschylus's play. The Athena of Homer's Odyssey, as does Homer himself, well, that Athena champions, supports, and encourages blood feuds, vendettas, and family honor, above all, systems of justice. But then, a mere 300 years later in world history, well, Aeschylus' Athena, she challenges, she refutes, and she replaces that entire moral code. Now, this really shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us listening. Uh, by comparison, just look back on how we have recreated, repurposed, or, to be fair to my theistic friends, come to better discern, the will, the edicts, and the moral codes of our own gods over the previous 300 years of our own history. So there is no reason at all why we should be surprised that the Olympian gods evolved too. And as to Aeschylus's Athena, well, in championing justice via courtroom trial over justice via blood feud and eye-for-eye eye revenge, Aeschylus's Athena was taking just one tiny and tentative step forward in our painful evolution as a species. But folks, I fear that tiny and tentative steps is the operative phrase if you were a woman living in classical Greece. But in the meantime, as I just said, let's celebrate the baby steps. If you think of it, at least none of us were born into the world that young Orestes was born into, where from birth there was no way out for him between the Scylla of avenging his father and the Charybdis of being forced to murder his very own mum. So, on that optimistic note, it is time for me to say my goodbyes. I hope you've had some fun. I hope you've maybe even learned or got to think about a few interesting things. And in our next episode, well, we will be back to telling the story of Odysseus again. And when we re-encounter our wandering hero, we will find him where we left him what seems like many hours of podcast to go, washed up on the shores of the land of the Phaeacians.
where I can promise you some very, very interesting things are going to happen to our adventuring hero. So ladies and gentlemen, have yourselves awesome days. Thanks for listening and bye for now.